0: Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. Okay, Uh, we are in session two of our series called Through the Window. We're going through the book of Revelation in four weeks, (laughs) which you kind of want to laugh at, but it's going to be a really brief overview. This is going to be really basic, really brief, because when it comes to apocalyptic literature and the symbolism therein, there is no end to the amount of topics that we could cover and discuss and conversations we could get into. So we're doing four weeks through the book of Revelation. We're in week two, and we're calling it Through the Window because it's not necessarily a sequence of events, but it's what John sees next. Constantly through the book, we're going to see John turning And seeing, we're going to see him called up to heaven, come up here and see, turn and see, look and see John. It's as if John gets a glimpse through the windows of heaven of the things which are, the things which were, and the things which will be. So we're going to see what John sees when he looks through the window. And we talked about how in verses 1 and 2, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is the central theme of the book. Jesus, the conquering king, the lamb that was slain, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the ancient of days, it's all about Jesus. And I joked that I wanted to come up and say, Jesus wins, and if you know Jesus, you win, and there, that's it, right? What what more do we need to say? Because it's all about Jesus. He is the conquering king. Ah, So, What happens next? John, in chapter 4, we left him with this this heavenly vision of a throne room. And he saw the one who sat on the throne. And he saw the four living creatures. He saw the elders. He saw all those bowing down and worshiping and praising and singing. We just sang three songs this morning. There is a lot of singing in the book of Revelation, as we're going to see. So as we come into chapter 5, John's in this throne room. He's looking at the one seated on the throne... And then we have some new elements enter into the story here. Last week, we ended by saying those seven churches who received the seven letters from Jesus, all that they needed was found in Jesus. The description that Jesus was given of himself in chapter one, each of the elements and attributes of who he is was applied to each of those seven churches. What do we need? We need Jesus. Where is Jesus? He's in the midst of the lampstands. He's in his church. It's all about Jesus. The center of the church is Jesus. The focus is Jesus this morning. Let's keep our focus on him. In chapter 5, we're introduced to this scroll that has seven seals. Now, papyrus scrolls were used quite often back in this day to be sent around. They'd be carrying messages. Sometimes when they were sent from kings or lords or authorities, they would take hot wax on the seal of that papyrus scroll, the opening, and they would seal it, and they would use their signet ring to stamp into it as kind of a, uh, you know where you write who it's from on the edge of the letter? This, This scroll has seven of them. Have you ever mailed a letter and thought it was pretty important, so I'll put it inside a package, inside bubble wrap, inside another package? Have you ever mailed a letter with seven envelopes wrapped around it? That's kind of the picture we're getting. This is important, important, important. The seals could not be opened by anyone other than to whom the letter was addressed. The only one who is worthy to open them was the one to whom the scroll is addressed. And he could only open it in the presence of the witnesses. Now in this throne room, in heaven, they're looking at this scroll. It's got writing on the inside, it's got writing on the outside, which speaks to the fact that it's full. It's complete. Everything's written on it. No more can be added. Full Conclusion. That's the theme of the book of Revelation. It's perfect, it's full, it's complete. John sees the scroll. This scroll contains the conclusion, the completion, the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan for humanity. So, what does it say? Everybody is anxiously awaiting what this scroll has to say. This is chapter 5 and verse 1. But look at what happens in verse 4 of chapter 5. John says, I began to weep loudly. Because no one was found to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Jesus is the conquering king. So that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Jesus is the only one worthy to open the scroll, to break the seals. If it wasn't for Jesus, the book of Revelation would be done at this point. Do you realize that? We wouldn't have anything else after chapter 4 in the book of Revelation if it wasn't for the fact that Jesus was counted worthy to open the scroll and to break the seals. Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. This speaks to his authority. This speaks to his sovereignty, his power, his courage. And then he's called the root of David. Jesus asked a question to the, re- the religious leaders. You remember that? David said to my Lord that whole conversation about who came first. Jesus initiated the throne of David. Jesus gave birth to David. Jesus created, so he's on the front end, but then also Jesus is the root of. He's he's from the lineage of the tribe of Judah, the lineage of David. He has conquered. He can open it. He's the only one. One was found worthy. And then look in verse 6. It says this. Between the throne and the four living creatures... And among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. Where's the lamb standing? He's in the middle. Yeah, I like that. Middle. I'd even say the center. The lamb is standing in the center between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders. A lamb standing as though it had been slain. Seven horns, seven eyes, seven spirits of God which go out into all the earth. Horns speak of power. When you hear the word horn, it talks about his power. When you hear the word eyes, it talks about wisdom, and then the Spirit sending out over all the earth. Now, God has one Spirit, the Holy Spirit. God is three in one, Father, Spirit, Son. When it talks about spirits here, when it talks about eyes, when it talks about horns, it's talking about God's attributes of omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence. His power, his sovereignty, his knowledge, his presence goes out all over the earth. The lamb that was slain is God, the son of God, Jesus. Throughout the Old Testament, we see the picture of the lamb, don't we? On this three-year journey we've been doing through the Bible, we see the lamb. Adam and Eve sinned, God provided a lamb. Abel sacrificed a lamb. Noah sacrificed the lamb. Uh, Abraham and Isaac, they're up on the mountain, you remember? And Isaac looks at his father and says, see the wood, the fire, the altar's up there, but where's the lamb? Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb. Jehovah Jireh, God my provider, the rams caught in the thicket, the lamb dies in the place of Isaac. In the land of Egypt, the plagues, the last of the plagues, the death angel, the firstborn, sacrificed the Passover lamb and put his blood on the doorpost and the lintel and it would pass over. Constantly, the lamb is being slain in place of God's people. Jesus is the lamb that had been slain, who's standing. You know what that means? He's alive. He's resurrected. Jesus died on the cross. Three days later, he rose again from the tomb. This is Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The whole story is about Jesus. And John turns to see this lamb that had been slain, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, I really want you to see that Jesus is in the center of all of this. Everything that happens throughout the book of Revelation is only happening because he was counted worthy to break the seals and to look at the scroll. All of the attention, all of the affection, all of the adoration and worship in heaven is centered on the Lamb, the Lamb who was slain, Jesus Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Ancient of Days. It's all a focus on him. Have you ever been to a wedding? What happens when, when that door opens at the back and the music starts? dun dun da dun, dun, dun Every head turns, doesn't it? And then the bride is presented in white. And everybody stands. And then the bride walks the aisle. And what does the father often do before the bride comes up on stage? He unveils the bride. And then the bride is presented on stage for all to see. All eyes are on the bride and the bridegroom. Jesus is being presented in all of his power, in his glory, his deity, and his dignity, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Ancient of Days, the Lamb who was slain. He's presented, and all eyes are on him. This is the picture in the book of Revelation. This is the theme of Revelation. Look at Daniel chapter 7. Remember how I said that the book of Revelation has over 400 references to the Old Testament and counting? Daniel chapter 7. With the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days. God who's seated on the throne was presented before him. And to him was given, because he was counted worthy, to him was given dominion, glory, kingdom. All peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's the picture that we're looking at in this throne room of heaven as the lamb who was slain is presented and everybody bows and worships. The focus of the attention is on Jesus. Let's go back to that wedding picture for a moment. I'm not a big one for weddings. Is that okay? I don't know if that's a guy thing or if that's a pastor thing. Maybe oftentimes I'm standing up on stage with the wedding party. But sometimes in a hot, stuffy church facility, because it looks better for the pictures, they choose older ones oftentimes. And you're sitting there and it's kind of sweaty and you know you're watching the bride and then your attention shifts, doesn't it? You look over at the groom Look at the groomsmen, you look at the bridesmaids, maybe they offered a program that talks about the relationship of the bridesmaids to the bride and the groomsmen to the groom. Maybe you look around at all the friends and family who are connected to and related to the bride and the bridegroom, but your attention is off of the bridegroom. Let's keep Jesus as center focus. Jesus is clearly at the center of the book of Revelation, the scroll, the seals, it's all about Jesus. So let's be careful not to get our attention on secondary issues. Because I think when it comes to the book of Revelation and everybody's timidity and fear when it comes to the, the seeming chaos and craziness that ensues in the book of Revelation, we get our focus on secondary issues. And we start talking about theological and eschatological approaches to the book and who are these people, and what is this event, when is this event, how is this all going to take place, what's the sequence, and we get our focus off of the center of the book of Revelation, who is Jesus. I just want to be careful that we keep Jesus at the center. Now, there's many theological understandings, and I would be wrong if I just kind of glazed over, but we're kind of going to do that, because this is a really quick overview. We've only got two more weeks after this. We've got to make it halfway through the book before we end today, so... Buckle up. Um, I'm presenting a premillennial view. You may not agree with that. You may have a different view. Even within the premillennial view, there are very many views as to when the rapture of the church takes place, when the tribulation takes place, the millennial reign of Jesus. But at least it gives us somewhat of a framework for putting these events and these scenes that John sees through the windows of heaven As he's seeing these visions take place, at least it gives us a bit of a framework as to how they fit. I believe there's going to be a literal rapture, that the church will be called home to heaven. And I believe there's going to be a great tribulation, which will be seven years in length. And it's going to be split right down the middle, three and a half years. And I'm going to show you that in the book of Revelation and in Daniel chapter 9. then I believe there will be a literal millennial reign where King Jesus will reign not just in heaven, not just spiritually in our hearts, but physically over the earth. And then comes the rest of the book of Revelation. Chapters 6 to 19 are this great tribulation, these seven years. So that's my approach to it. You may have a different approach. The most important thing is that Jesus is central to this message. It's all about Jesus. He's the lamb that was slain, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the ancient of days. He's the conquering king. All of heaven's focus and attention is on Jesus. Look at Daniel chapter 9 here, just so I can show you what I'm talking about. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. I want you to understand this theme. Once we start talking about these judgments that we're going to dig into, we're going to talk about seven seal judgments. As each of those seven seals is broken and the scroll begins to open, with the breaking of each seal, there is a judgment poured out on the earth. And at the seventh seal opening, seven trumpet judgments are announced. So we're going to look at these 14 judgments. It's going to be a really quick overview. But as they are open, look at the theme. Look at the purpose. Look at what's happening here. To finish transgression. What is transgression? When people cross the line. When people cross God's line. To put an end to sin. What is sin? Sin is anything we think, say, or do that goes against God's word or God's ways. That's who God is. To atone for iniquity. To cover the dirt and the filth. To bring in everlasting righteousness. Everything that is good and right. You know what God is accomplishing with his wrath and his punishment on the earth? He is destroying everything that destroys. Pastor Brent Ingersoll said that at King's Church just this past week. They're going through Revelation as well. A lot of churches are going through Revelation. God seems to want us there in this season. I don't know what it is. God is destroying everything that destroys. God is eradicating sin. God is removing everything impure and restoring everything his earth, the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth, back to its original state before sin entered the picture. He's removing sin. That's why God's wrath enters into the story. And as you can see the time frame there, 70 weeks, it's indicative of of seven years. All right, today as we keep Jesus' center focus, we're just going to give a brief overview of these judgments as they come. Chapter 6, I just want to say, I read this little book in preparation for this. You probably can't see that on the screen at all, maybe the word Satan, but it's called Winning Your War Against Satan by Theodore Epp, Teddy Epp, from Back to the Bible. Uh, It's just a quick little read. First person who talks to me after the service, uh, this can be yours to read and return, so somebody else can read it. But the point in me reading this for this morning's passage was, I wanted to be so careful that I didn't present a theological interpretation of Revelation that leaves us saying, that's just a bunch of crazy stuff that's going to happen in the future that has no impact on my life today. The point that I want to make to you today is that you are fighting a battle, not just a literal seven-year tribulation that's going to come someday in the future, whether the church is raptured before, in the middle, or after of. I want you to see that there is a war waging right here, right now. And the war that is being raged is for the throne room, not in heaven, but the throne room in your heart. Who's sitting on the seat of your heart? That's what I want to dig into. As we dig into these first seal judgments, I don't want to say that, hey, someday in the future this is coming, so just keep your eyes and ears open for it. Maybe in our lifetime we'll see it. No, we are seeing it. We're seeing the war and the battle in the hearts and the minds of believers all over the world and unbelievers alike. And it's the battle between good and evil. It's the battle between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And there no, is no kingdom in between. There is no gray kingdom. It's either the kingdom of light or the kingdom of darkness and who is seated on your throne? See, as we talk about this, the theme of faithfulness to Jesus is going to come through and through. He's the center. He's in the throne room of heaven. All the focus is on him. But sometimes in our hearts and minds, how many know it's true, we kick Jesus off the seat of the throne in our heart and we replace him with wealth. We replace him with degree, position. We replace him with fame. We replace him with all the sureties and securities that this world promises and we don't allow Jesus to sit on the throne of our heart. Look at Ephesians. Uh, It's Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. Paul gives this uh, encouragement to the Ephesians. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So many times we think we're fighting our government, our neighbor, the person sitting next to us, our classmate. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Very apocalyptic, picturesque language here. Against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. He didn't say, we're going to wrestle, maybe in your lifetime. Maybe when this comes around, he says, we are wrestling. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We are wrestling against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces at work. This whole idea of God unveiling and allowing John to see. If only God could unveil and allow us to see the war that is waging right now. For the hearts and minds and humanity. For the attention, the affection, the worship of humanity. Cuz what you give your attention to is is what you attribute your worship to and your affection to. So um Dale and Becky Shannon have began attending our church in the last year. Becky is a talented artist. If you're an artist or interested in that, you need to talk to Becky. Uh, she makes some incredible works of art, and she's really inspired by the Book of Revelation and came up with a few pieces of her own that I want to show you. The first four seals that are opened on this scroll are the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse as you've probably heard. When we look at the book of Revelation, four horsemen of the apocalypse are like the big, big four that we see, which is too bad because Jesus is at the center. It's all about Jesus. I want to introduce some of, these, uh, some of these guys. The first one right here, the first seal is open. He's the conqueror. He's the Antichrist. The first living creature standing before the throne says to John, come and see this. Take a look at this. Look through this window and see this. You've got a rider with a crown which speaks of authority. Uh, Daniel 9 calls him the people's prince. The people give him this crown. He's got a bow. He's on a white horse. Notice he doesn't have any arrows, so there's no threat of war. He's coming in the name of peace. He's making a peace treaty. Uh, He's white, which speaks to the white flag. Right? War is over. Doesn't that sound like Jesus? Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? When he rides in on a white horse, the true conqueror, wearing the true king's crown. Uh, except Jesus has a sword. And this rider has a bow. And here's what I want to point out, and I'm going to point it out time and time again. So many times we're going to see Antichrist, we're going to see imitators, we're going to see people and powers posing themselves as Jesus. But they're not. It's just a phony on a pony. If I could coin that phrase. I don't know if anybody else said that. I want to be the first to say that. A phony on a pony. He's pretending. He's close. He's so close. He looks like Jesus. He comes in the name of peace. People unite under his leadership. They follow him. They call him the Christ. But he's an antichrist. He's not the real deal. He's a phony on a pony. You're never going to forget that now, are you? But doesn't this sound like our society? I mean, we chase after things that, that promise satisfaction. Things that have no real depth to them, but they look like. And we, we switch the Jesus seated on the throne of our heart with a fake, with an imitation. Who has no real power, who can't really provide satisfaction or salvation or redemption. Here's, here's the second. And these are beautiful, aren't they? I really wanted to have the real things up on stage, but I kept thinking, you know, what borrowed gets broken, and these are beautiful, fragile pieces of art, and uh, a picture is safer, for sure. This this is the red rider on the red horse, speaking of war. You You can see the effects of war on the children down here. I think it's just beautiful. He's got this long sword, red. Red speaks of rage, speaks of war, speaks of... Blood speaks of bloodshed, terror, death. You know, it doesn't take long for the Antichrist promises of peace to turn into war. Like right around the corner, the very next seal, war. Uh, Pastor Matt Chandler says that warfare is mankind's natural bent. Cain killed Abel. It took one generation for murder to enter the story. One generation. And you sense that, don't you? My wife was joking with me. I I would say that I don't struggle with road rage, but I'm like a borderline, you know? Like, I would never swing my arm out the window or something like that, but I get frustrated when people cut me off, or they're not doing the speed limit, or they go flying by. Do you ever feel that? Or maybe you walk into Superstore, and you see that line, and your, your fury starts to bubble up, like, can't they do things? Can't they open another cache? Where are those... You know, teenagers are supposed to be working here. Are they on break? Are they on their cell phone? Shouldn't they be here helping me so I get out of here? Do you ever feel any of that? Am I the only one? I think war and arguing and fighting is in our heart. Sometimes we let it sit on the throne of our heart. We push Jesus aside when he says, turn the other cheek and give your cloak also we put ourselves on and say, but don't I deserve? Shouldn't I be the one? For... Colossians chapter 3 and verse 6, it says this. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. We're talking about the wrath of God. We're talking about the judgment of God, the seven seals. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Just like in the Old Testament when they told the Israelites to put away all the idols from you, destroy them, get rid of them. Put them all away anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Put it away. Paul says, put it away and put on what Christ has given you. Put off the things of the world and put on what Christ has gifted you in your freedom and your salvation. All right, the third seal a black horse and its rider is, is holding a pair of scales. And the black horse speaks of famine, costly reserves. You work all day for very little food. Does that sound familiar? You work and work, you dig the ditch to get the money to buy the food, to get the energy to dig the ditch, to buy the food. to get. It's, it's this famine, this scarcity mindset. That sounds like our world today, doesn't it? Um, It says in the passage that food is 8 to 12 times as expensive as it normally is. You work all day for a denarius, a penny, a day's wage, and it'll only buy you some bread, and it won't satisfy. And the cycle continues. You've just got to work harder, give more. You know, if we've got to kick Jesus off the throne of our heart and replace him with anything else, if we can't be content with Jesus, then we're going to fall into this scattered mindset pattern where we try the next thing, the grass on the other side of the fence. Maybe this will satisfy, maybe this, and they become idols in our life, chasing after some sort of satisfaction when Jesus is the only one who can really give us satisfaction. And in today's world, in North America, with the luxury that we have, it's just incredible that we have all of this luxury, but we don't really have what we need, do we? Matt Chandler uh, cited an article that he had read where The average American has less to live for day by day. Less friends, less community, less family, less of anything to really live for. What do they have more of? More work, more money, more assets to their name, but less of the things that people really cite as things to live for. We have all the luxury, but none of the necessity. The rider on the black horse. Here's the rider on the pale horse. I wish, I wish you could see the detail. I wish we had this here for you. There's, there's a lot of elements going on, and, and you've got to take a look. Widespread death on earth. On earth, The fourth living creature says to John, come and see, come look at this. There's this pale horse, like a yellowish-green color, like the color of something that might glow in the dark. Um, the rider's name is Death, and Hades follows after him. Now, Hades is the realm of the dead. Death takes the body Hades takes the soul. That's how we uh, define the two. Jesus has the keys to death in Hades, if, if you remember that from chapter 1. Jesus, Jesus has the authority. He's still in control. Now these guys, they have power over a quarter of the earth, a quarter of the earth, to kill with sword, hunger, beast, death, and all of these things typically accompanied wars, you can see throughout the Old Testament. Physical death and spiritual death. Um, when we look in the book of Ephesians, it says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We were born, we were, we were still born, dead. And a dead person spiritually can't help themselves, can't raise themselves, can't save themselves. We need a savior. But then physically, death comes to all men. Nobody's going to escape it. Somebody said that modern society is, is the, the greatest, oh, what did they say, it was like a distraction tactic, like, like a magic show, trying to take everybody's attention away from their inevitable mortality. Everything's just a distraction so that we avoid the question, what happens after we die? Because death is, is the ultimate victor. If we're just looking physically, if we don't talk spiritually or look into what the Word of God says, death is the ultimate victor because it's, it's never lost. When it comes to humanity, it's, it's never lost. But look, Matthew chapter 24 and verse 5. This is Jesus. Sermon on the Mount. He says, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Who does that sound like? The Antichrist. The rider with the bow on the white horse. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Who does that sound like? rider on the red horse. War. See that you are not alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines. Who does that sound like? And earthquakes in various places. All these are about the beginning of the birth pains. You have to imagine there's some death in this picture as well, right? Isn't this just God's mercy upon mercy? That Daniel would say, and Zechariah would say, and Jesus would say, and now John is saying warnings of the things that are to come. So what's the call? Repentance, faithfulness. Turn back to Jesus. He's at the center of the story. God's sending all these warnings with his prophets, with his son, with John the apostle. God's giving so many opportunities, as we're going to see as, as we continue on. All right, the fifth seal is the cry of the martyrs, it's the sound of the martyrs under the altar. If you read Leviticus 17, verse 11, it's the picture of this blood running down the sacrifice, down the altar, and would end up under the altar. The martyrs are under the altar. It's their blood that was shed for Jesus Christ in the name of Jesus as they were martyred. Paul said, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. You remember when he said that? It's similar picture language. He's giving his life for Jesus. For me to live as Christ, to die as gain, Paul said. And then the question is, how long will you Avenge our blood? How long until you will avenge our blood? And that's not a new question. You see it throughout the Old Testament. King David asked that question. Habakkuk asked that question, chapter 1 and verse 2. But today, justice is such a huge conversation, isn't it? How long before the question of evil is taken care of? Judgment. This is all part of God's kingdom coming. Then we get to the sixth seal. There's this cosmic disturbance. There's there's earthquake, there's a black sun, moon like blood, the stars fell on earth, the sky rolled like a scroll, mountains and islands are moved, the rich and the poor, the powerful and the weak, they're all together hiding in caves, asking that maybe the rocks would be fall, fall on the opening of the cave so that we would be hidden from the wrath of the sun, from the wrath of God. Rank and wealth can't save you, so don't let them on the throne of your heart. Then we come to chapter 7. We're blazing right along here. Uh, We take a break from the seven seals for just a moment. Here's the picture. There's four angels, four corners of the earth, four winds. And then another angel from the east with the seal of God. He comes and he says this. Don't harm the earth, the sea, the trees, until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. 144,000, 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel that are listed. 144,000 sealed. Now... I'm not going to tell you who I think they are, but I'm going to tell you who four other men think they are. And these four men are the four guys that I studied to prepare for this message. And they all said something slightly different than the next. I have never studied a book of the Bible where so many people have so many different theological interpretations and applications. So here's just one example, the 144,000. Pastor Matt Chandler, Village Church in Dallas. He's preaching through Revelation right now. I'd encourage you to check it out. He says this isn't a literal number. It's symbolic of a huge innumerable crowd of God's people. Uh, Tuck and Alford, who are theologians, they agree, saying it's a symbolic number. Kevin DeYoung, uh, he gives a similar explanation. The 144,000 are not ethnic Jewish remnant uh, and certainly not an anointed class of saints who became Jehovah's Witnesses before 1935. That's commonly held among Jehovah's Witnesses that it refers to them. Uh, The 144,000 represents the entire community of the redeemed. 12 is the complete number of God's people. Now, I kind of mentioned this last week. 12 tribes, 12 apostles, 12 times 12, 144 times it by 1,000. 1,000 is a number uh, symbolic of a great multitude, so you get 144,000. Remember, the 10 tribes were taken into captivity, right? The Assyrians, the Babylonians. They kind of lost their lineage. Not too many Jews today can prove what tribe they belong to, which feeds into this interpretation of the 144,000. And then you get some other guys that I studied who would be more uh, premillennial dispensationalists. Warren Wiersbe says that there are literally 144,000 sealed Jewish men who are on earth in contrast to the innumerable crowd of God's people in heaven who we're about to see. And then he says, although Scripture doesn't necessarily confirm this, which is always like, okay, Uh, But he believes to be the logical deduction. The elect Jews in the last days with a special task from God. And then one more. Malcouch believes these are literally 144,000 Jews who were sexually pure. That's really important to him. And would also be martyred for the cause of Christ. So do you see all these differences? Just in one name right there. But I think maybe the most important part is their faithfulness to God. The 144,000 faithful were sealed. Faithful. Uh, When you look at the list of the 12 tribes that are listed, it's not the typical 12 tribes of Israel that you see. Uh, Dan isn't on the list. Joseph, Manasseh. uh, Dan is probably removed from the list because, potentially for their idolatry in giving their heart away to false idols. Ezekiel chapter 9, you actually have this picture of people being sealed for their idolatry. Idolatry or for their faithfulness, and to distinguish between the two. Here you have a similar picture. They're sealed for their faithfulness. It's like they're set apart, they're sanctified. Um, but however we understand the 144,000 sealed, they are faithful to God. And the big question is Is Jesus on the throne of your heart? Are you faithful to God? Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9. After this, John looks. Here's another vision he sees. Behold, great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes, from all peoples, from all languages. Isn't that a beautiful picture right there? Doesn't that sound like the Great Commission? Go to all the earth. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. Now what does that remind you of? Jesus is being presented in all of his glory, in the throne room of heaven. There's palm branches. Uh, Later on it says, crying out with loud voices, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Um, That day, when Jesus had the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he was seated on the colt that had never been ridden. They waved palm branches. They shouted, Hosanna, we're we're getting there. We got a couple more pages, but we're getting there. Okay? They shouted, Hosanna, okay. I can tell we're getting to the end here. Um, and then it talks about the throne. Blessed is he who comes, who sits on the throne of David. Well, Jesus isn't just sitting on the throne of David. He's sitting on God's throne in heaven. This is like his triumphal entry, his triumphal appearance as the conquering king in heaven. He's the lamb worthy to break the seals and to open the scrolls. One of the elders asked John, who are these? Who's this multitude? (laughs) And John's like, you're asking me? Well, you probably know who they are. Tell me, who are they? And then he proceeds to tell John, These are those who have come out of the great tribulation, washed white in the blood of the Lamb. They're clothed in white robes because of the blood of the Lamb. It's it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. His blood cleanses us from sin. Uh, Jesus dwells with them. There's no hunger. There's no thirst. All satisfaction is found in Jesus. Everything the church needs, everything the world needs, is found in Jesus. He's the center. There's no heat that will burn. The Lamb will lead. The Lamb will shepherd. God will wipe tears away. Doesn't that sound like heaven? In the midst of the first sealed judgments, we get this picture of God's mercy. God wiping tears away, clothing people in white through the blood of Jesus. All people, every nation, every tribe, every person, every language. Nobody excluded. This this is a picture of true equality right here. And the equality is found in the blood of Jesus Christ. We're united through the cross of Jesus. All right. We come to the seventh seal in chapter 8, and it's the prelude to the seven trumpets, the next set of judgments, and we're just going to fly over these. But there's silence in heaven for 30 minutes. For 30 minutes, they stop in silence. And then seven angels with seven trumpets appear. There's a golden censer that's lit with fire and it's thrown to the earth. There's noises, thunderings, lightnings, earthquakes. The seven angels get ready to blow their seven trumpets. Now, last week I referenced the, uh, the conquest of Jericho. You remember the people marched six days around Jericho and then on the seventh day they marched seven times and then seven priests blew seven trumpets. It's a similar picture, isn't it? Here's the angels. Seven angels blowing seven trumpets. We've just been through seven seal judgments. This is the seventh seal judgment. Isn't this just a picture of God's grace and mercy? Like God could have wiped out Jericho on the first day. Why did he wait seven days? God could have wiped out the earth with the first seal. Why did he wait till the seventh to continue on in the judgments? God could have ended sin... Right after Adam and Eve took of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He could have ended the story right there. And not put up with sin any longer. And he would have been totally just in doing that. So, we have these, uh, these trumpet judgments. And here they are. I told you we were going to fly over them. What I want you to see is that they very closely mimic the ten plagues in Egypt. There's over 400 references to the Old Testament. Matt Chandler says everything that's being presented in Revelation has already been presented elsewhere in Scripture. There's nothing necessarily new. The first trumpet all of the vegetation is struck. Uh, There's hail, there's fire, there's blood, there's burned trees and grass. The second trumpet the seas are struck. There's a great mountain burning with fire. It's thrown into the sea. A third of the sea becomes blood. You remember when the Nile River became blood in Egypt? A third of the creatures of the sea, a third of the ships are destroyed. Then you have the third trumpet. We've got all the fresh water, all the rivers and lakes. There's this burning star called wormwood. Wormwood is a herb that's like really bitter. You get it in your mouth and the taste lasts like 15 minutes. You got to wash it out. Really bitter. All the water becomes bitter. Many people died from it. Sorry, a third of the water became bitter. You see these fractions? I want you to notice them. Um, there was no direct plague of bitter water in Egypt, but there was one in Mara, right after the, the Hebrew people made their way out of Egypt. Remember the bitter water. The fourth trumpet, the heavens are struck. Uh, there's, there's a third of the sun, the moon, the stars darkened. There were three days of darkness in the plagues of Egypt. Uh, An angel flies through and says, Woe for the remaining trumpets. There's three more to come. And he says, Woe to all those living on earth. Which could actually be translated those living for the earth. Those who have substituted the throne room of their heart for, for the idols of the earth. Those who are living for the earth. For earthly things. Paul tells us to get rid of the earthly things and to put on christ then we have the fifth trumpet this one's pretty picturesque locusts from the pit now these locusts they're pictured like armored horses and they have tails like scorpions the sun's darkened there's smoke there's a star that has fallen um this lasts for five months which is actually the lifespan of a typical locust apparently they last about five months um, they're like horses prepared for battle, crowns of gold, faces like men, women 's hair, lions teeth. Abandon Apollyon, destroyer, Satan. he 's the one. he 's the angel from the pit who ruled over them. For more on that, John 10:10. 10, 10. He came to seek, kill, and destroy. that 's the picture that we 're getting here. All of this imagery is, is not meant to necessarily describe what the battle's going to look like. it 's meant to evoke the fear. Of the apocalyptic language, force us to feel the horror of this judgment. Uh, you can see locusts in the ten plagues of Egypt, and then you have the sixth trumpet. We've got the angel, the angels from Euphrates. Um, the voices from the altar release the four angels bound at Euphrates. Bound angels—it's a reference to evil angels, the third who left heaven to follow Satan. They kill a third of mankind, 200 million in the army. Riders with red, blue, and yellow, horse heads like lions breathing fire, tails like serpents, third of the mankind is gone. Now, if you've done the math, we're at half of the world's population. But it could have been 100%. It could have been all the sun, moon, and stars. It could have been all the fresh water. It could have been all the salt water and the swimming creatures... And the boats. It could have been all the vegetation on earth. It could have been all of mankind. And it likely should have been. God in his justice could have been totally right in saying, you're done. And it's done. Why does God tarry? Why does God wait? Why, why does God long suffer? Don't miss God's mercy on full display. After all of these, these 14 judgments, these, these 14 pictures of the wrath of God being poured out, destroying all that destroys, eradicating sin and sinfulness, the rest of mankind who did not die, the 50% remaining, they refused to repent after all that. Uh, Weersby says the most frightening thing is not the judgments that God says, but the sin that mankind continues to do even while God is judging them. I don't want you to miss God's mercy on full display. We come to chapter 10, and we look at verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. Who else came down from heaven? Jesus did, didn't he? Jesus left the throne and the glory of heaven to become a man, fully man, fully God, to live a perfect, sinless life, to die on the cross in our place, to rise again to give us new life. Angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, Later on, it says, like a a pillar of fire. The cloud and the pillar of fire. What does that make you think of? You know, when God is leading his people through the wilderness after those ten plagues in Egypt, like a pillar of fire by day, by night, and then a cloud by day, he's guiding his people, he's with his people. God was in the cloud when he gave the Ten Commandments. God was in the cloud when he showed his glory to Moses. God was ascending into the clouds. When Jesus ascended, the cloud received him. With a rainbow over his head. Where do we see the rainbow? Well, God set his bow in the sky when he made the promise to Noah and to all mankind that he would never again flood the earth and destroy the earth by water. Rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun. I love Lamentations chapter 3. His mercies are new every morning. Every time that sun comes up, great is your faithfulness. Do you see God's mercy wrapped up in this picture? Wearsby suggests this could be Jesus. Throughout the Old Testament, we see Jesus appearing as the angel of the Lord. Revelation chapter 10 and verse 6. That there would be no more delay, God is long-suffering, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Why does God delay? Why does God take his time? Why does God seem to drag this out? Why wouldn't God just get it done? You know, rip the band-aid off quick. Well, I think it's 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness. Sometimes we think it's slow. Sometimes we think it's slow and painful. But it's patience. He's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish. God is not pouring out his wrath because he's mad at mankind and he just wants to eradicate mankind. No, he's eradicating sin. He's destroying all that destroys. He's destroying the thing that has taken the abundant life from you that Jesus said that you should have. He's destroying sin. He's not destroying humanity, he's destroying sin. Sinfulness. He's patient towards us. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Sometimes it takes people a long time to wake up and smell the coffee, smell the roses. To realize that the way that we've been living our life, who we've allowed on the throne of our heart, the direction we're going, the path that we're taking, where we're going to end up is not where God would have us to be. And to repent, to turn, to give up on those old ways, and to embrace the new life that Jesus Christ has for us. I've gone over time, and there's a lot in there, um, but we're going to pick it up at chapter 11 next week, all right? Jesus is the center of the story. It's all about him. Let's pray. Father God, I want to praise you so much for who you are today. God, I thank you for the book of Revelation, all of its intricacies, all of these pictures and symbols that we find so hard to wrap our minds around Let us not get sidetracked by secondary issues, but let us see who's at the center of the picture of the throne room in heaven. Everybody bowing down before the Lamb who was slain, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus who conquered death and hell and the devil and sin and suffering and all of our embarrassment and shame and all the things we have tucked away in our closet. God, thank you so much that you've defeated all those and that your ultimate plan of redemption concludes with every tribe, tongue, nation, people, bowing down before you and hailing the Lamb who is slain. And with the eradication of sin and brokenness and all that is evil and vile in this world, God, thank you that justice will be served. But thank you that with justice, your mercy is always evident. God, thank you for your promises. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your patience with us, God. We don't deserve it. But we want to praise you for your love towards us. In Jesus' name. Amen.